The next American Society of Breast Surgeons faculty member I interviewed was Dr. David Hyams, who presented a fascinating case at the symposium, specifically a woman who participated in two major NSABP randomized clinical trials. This was a woman who was referred to me because she had actually palpated a mass in the breast on self-examination, and this was an area that had been concerning to her and led her to seek attention from her primary care provider. He referred her to me after organizing a mammogram. The mammogram had demonstrated that she did have a mass in that breast that was irregular and spiculated and appeared to be about a centimeter in size. The mass that she had when she came to see me on physical examination appeared to be about one and a half centimeter palpable mass in the upper outer aspect of her left breast. And she had no evidence of clinical lymph node involvement. Can you talk a little bit about what she was doing at that point in her life? Is she working, family, etc.? Well, this was an active woman who lived in the southwest in the Rancho Mirage area who was quite active, as many of our patients are. She was an avid golfer and had moved from the Midwest some years earlier. She had worked as an office manager prior to retiring. And how old was she? when 61. 61. What about her family? spouse? She did not have a spouse. Her spouse had actually died. He had been older and was the reason that they had moved out west. She had retired a little bit younger than usual, but he unfortunately had died a few years earlier of a heart attack. So what happened at that point? So at that point, we suggested that we get tissue. Clearly, she had an abnormality that was suspicious by mammography. She had a suspicious abnormality on physical examination. And I guess most importantly, this was a woman who was pretty aware of her breasts. And although she didn't do monthly self-examinations, she examined herself regularly, as she put it. And this was something new and different. We went ahead and ordered a ultrasound-guided core biopsy. This was something that made sense because there was a clear defined mass. And the ultrasound-guided biopsy returned a diagnosis of invasive ductal carcinoma, which was grade 2. The ER was positive in 100% of cells, PR in 50%, and HER2 was negative by fish. What was your conversation like with her at that point? Well, I explained to her that she had a primary breast cancer that still fit into the smaller size category, a T1 lesion, that we had no clinical evidence of disease that was in the lymph nodes or elsewhere in the body based on her examination and her history, and that the next reasonable step would be to consider primary surgical intervention. We, of course, discussed the potential of using systemic therapies first in a general sense and the use of systemic therapies after surgery, but in her particular case, she had a generous breast and there was no unique reason to give her preoperative treatment in order to shrink the tumor, and we felt that a breast conservation approach would be quite reasonable and appropriate. I think it's important to give your best advice, and I personally think for the average individual who's an equal candidate for both, that they do better with breast conservation approaches. They're happier, more satisfied, and the cosmetics are better. But there are a number of reasons to consider mastectomy, even in a patient like this. Happily, she does not have a history of connective tissue disease, but those individuals who do or other autoimmune disease are at much higher risk for complications and adverse sequelae of radiation. So those are individuals who might do better with a mastectomy. 
Individuals who have high family risks, which she did not, obviously might consider uh, mastectomy or even bilateral mastectomy. And in those individuals, I make it a point in my practice to consider doing a genetic risk assessment even before we make the final decision on primary surgery. And we can usually complete that within a month, and I don't think that adversely would influence the tumor growth or her safety. What was her attitude towards breast conservation versus mastectomy? She was interested in breast conservation. Again, like many of the women in our community, she is attuned to her appearance. She looked uh, about 10 years younger than her stated age. She golfs. She doesn't wear bikinis, but she does swim at the club that she belonged to and wanted to maintain as much as possible a natural appearance. Now, another consideration, and this kind of is going to get into sort of what happened with her, is the question of if she's going to have breast conservation, she's going to require radiation therapy. What do you go through with patients from that point of view? And how often does just the travel and the inconvenience come up to be a significant issue with patients? Well, I think that's a great question. We live in the West, and although this particular woman happened to live within 30 minutes of either of three very good radiation therapy facilities, she still has an active lifestyle. And, of course, for traditional radiation therapy, even if you live close, it is a daily visit. It's a daily visit that takes place five days a week for, on average, six weeks. Now, we do get a number of patients in the Intermountain West that live a much larger distance away where there aren't good facilities nearby and where their choices come to either driving an hour or two or three in some cases to a facility or having to move to get radiation over five or six weeks. Now, in this woman's case, at that point, were you talking to her about the radiation therapy and you know, how she'd feel about it, or was it still a little bit early? Well, I think it's very important at the very beginning to talk to patients and give them a global perspective on what's going to happen in their care. So we talk about primary management of breast cancer. I explain to them that in the end, it is, of course, important that we control the disease locally, but that it doesn't specifically matter from a survival standpoint whether we do that with breast conservation or we do it with mastectomy. When we do talk about mastectomy, of course, we talk about the issue of reconstruction and what's involved with that. But when we talk about breast conservation along the same line, we do talk about the use of adjuvant radiation therapy. I explained to them that that is a part of the treatment. It's not an add-on to the treatment. And certainly I believe that's the case with invasive disease with a few exceptions. Uh, of course, there's recent cooperative group data that shows that women who are more than 70 years of age who have relatively contained very low-risk disease, although they do have a somewhat higher local recurrence rate, there's been no discernible difference in survival, at least with eight years of follow-up. But most other studies, in fact, virtually every other study that's tried to look at ways of eliminating radiation therapy for good prognosis disease has really never been able to be completed and show equivalence. In fact, most of the studies have been terminated early. So what was the next step with this woman? So the next step for this woman was to schedule surgery. And we, in fact, did schedule a breast conservation approach with a sentinel lymph node evaluation. We explained to them the advantages of doing a sentinel node and the fact that a negative sentinel node, on average, confer a 92% chance of being accurate. In other words, if the sentinel node or nodes are negative, then we should only have an 8% chance that there's, in fact, a cult disease that we've missed. And this is based on both the large British and the NSABP clinical trials. 
So in fact, we took her to the operating room and we did a segmental resection. We put the breast back together again, utilizing some internal advancement of tissue because the resultant defect was about two centimeters in each dimension. And we like to make sure that we don't have skin overlying the underlying muscle without any tissue between it. Would this be so-called oncoplastic surgery? And I think this fits into the category of oncoplastic surgery. And I think these kinds of approaches do lead to improvement in result, although I do think it's very important if one is considering any oncoplastic tissue movement to at least put clips into the original cavity area. This is very important, particularly if one is going to consider utilizing some of the more limited radiation therapeutic approaches so that the radiation oncologist and the surgeon both understand exactly where the at-risk tissue is or was. And what about the sentinel node procedure? First of all, how do you do it? How many nodes did you identify and what did you see in her? Well, I guess I'm a belt and suspenders individual, and so I utilize both the blue dye and the radioisotope approaches together. The patient in our facility has the technetium sulfocolloid placed before surgery. We don't get lymphocentigraphy any longer for breast cancer because we found that not to add very much, although the radiologist will sometimes utilize that, but quite uncommonly now. We do survey in the operating room with one of the gamma probes. We happen to use the neoprobe, and we look for evidence of uptake that's outside of the axilla, but it's quite uncommon, again, to find that. We, in the operating room, inject the lymphogerin blue dye, as do most, I think, people in this country, and usually remove anywhere from one to four sentinel nodes in the average patient. What happened with her? In her case, we actually had four sentinel lymph nodes, that is four nodes that had radioactivity. And and I find the radioactivity is useful because after removing the first bluest, hottest node, one would like to see the counts drop to less than 10% at background. And if you still have counts, then I think it's important to take those additional nodes out, which we did in this case. The ultimate result was a final pathology demonstrating a tumor size of 0.8 centimeters, which just goes to show you that these cancers can appear larger on examination. The infiltrating ductals, conversely, the infiltrating lobulars are often larger than they may appear on imaging and even on palpation. The margins were clear all the way around, and the four sentinel lymph nodes were all negative for malignancy, both by immunohistochemistry as well as by standard H&E staining. So I'm guessing at that point you had a conversation with her about the findings and what your thoughts were about it. Yes, we did. We went over her story again. She now, of course, has a T1B rather than T1C lesion, a T1B lesion pathologically that's N0, and of course, we have every reason to believe she's M0. I explained to her that she falls into a generally good risk category. However, the final pathology did show that the tumor, again, was grade 2, and although ER was 100%, PR was somewhat less at 50%. This means that there could be some variability in the actual biological behavior. We know from a very good study that was done by Soon Paik, the pathology director at the NSABP, looking at patients from the original NSABP B14 study, that taking slides from all of the patients in whom blocks were available who were treated with tamoxifen alone and sending those to three different breast specialty pathologists 
led to a concordance among the three for grade that was somewhat at the 50% level. In fact, it was a little less than 50%, suggesting that there is variability, and any two of three pathologists have some tendency to blur the lines between the grade ones and twos, and similarly between the grade twos and threes. In this particular case, she was a grade two, and we thought it might be useful to understand a little more what the likelihood was of distant recurrence, and we chose to offer her participation in the Taylor X, or PACT trial, which would provide her with an opportunity to learn this information through the Oncotype DX recurrence score assay, and participate in a trial that would help us better identify which population of patients benefit most from either chemotherapy with hormonal therapy or hormonal therapy alone in the intermediate risk group. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what her emotional state was around that time, whether she was out there on the internet trying to get information or talking to a lot of people about things, and you know, sort of how she felt in general about what was going on, about the possibility of participating in clinical research. Well, when I see a patient on the front end and I tell them about the management of breast cancer, when they first come to see me, I find it very useful to give them a brief sense of the history as to why they are being able to save their breast or be treated the way they are. And I almost always remind them that their treatment will be piggybacked on the efforts of well over 50,000 women that participated in key clinical trials over the last 20 years or so that demonstrated the value and that had these trials not been done, they would have all had radical mastectomies and very little other treatment. So I try to set the tone that clinical trials are something that I think are very important in cancer care and that I will present to them as their treatment sort of unfolds. How do people respond to those kinds of discussions? Well, I think people respond well. There are clearly individuals who still are very, very concerned that clinical trials put them in the position of being a guinea pig. They're concerned that we really know the right answer but don't want to tell them. But for the most part, Again, a well-educated patient who has an opportunity to absorb this information over time, not given to them as a single moment. I think for the most part, those individuals are very, very favorably disposed. Now, this is a hard trial for some patients because it does have a randomization between chemotherapy and not. And chemotherapy is such an emotional issue. And patients either think it's so important or so unimportant that a randomization is hard, but still some 60% of the patients that we offer this study to do accept it. What about this woman? Can you talk a little bit more about her emotional state at that point and her kind of state of mind in general as you were dealing with her over these few weeks? Well, this was a well-educated, bright woman, and she lives in an affluent area. She certainly has access and did have access to the internet and did some searching. She also got plenty of unsolicited advice from her bridge group, But we again try to make them or help them understand that there's a difference between anecdotal information and stories and really good clinical data. And we try to, again, really reinforce the value of clinical trials and solid data and evidence-based medicine. But clearly the key issue here in her was whether she was going to get chemotherapy. That was what was out on the board. That was out on the board. And she was actually quite stable emotionally. She did not have a lot of tears. She was distressed clearly at the beginning when the diagnosis was made, although I think she expected it when she came to see me. 
And in terms of chemotherapy, did she verbalize any particular concerns or experiences about it to you? Well, of course, like all patients, the first issue that people point to, interestingly enough, is the hair loss issue. And alopecia is still a concern to women with chemotherapy. But I do think that women are, for the most part, enough well-versed in the potential use of this agent. And I think increasingly recognize that this is a temporary circumstance, and it's no longer a societal stigma like it used to be, that they are somewhat more open. They still are concerned, but that will not make them not take chemotherapy. The women who don't take chemotherapy don't take it because they're concerned about taking poison in their body, not because of the hair loss, and not because they may feel ill. So this woman was looking at that as a possibility, and you were presenting to her the option of participating in this trial where she'd be randomized if she happened to have an intermediate score to either chemotherapy or not chemotherapy. What happened after you explained that to her? What did she decide to do? She chose to participate in the trial because she was impressed that this was modern medicine that gave her access to the latest in terms of care, although she recognized that she could have gotten the assay independently, although I'm not certain in her case whether her insurance would or would not have covered it. Certainly, had she been a few years older, Medicare would have. But more importantly, I think she really felt that she wanted to give something back to participate in the process. And so she did choose the trial. She signed consent. Now, I do think it's important to point out that while I encourage participation in studies, We have to be very careful. If we have a patient in this circumstance who we approach with a trial like this, and we really believe that that patient has a prejudgment as to what they will do, in other words, if I'm randomized to chemotherapy, I'm just going to drop out of the trial, which is their right, then we really should not enter those patients into the trial. We should really make very clear that if they wish to participate in the trial, And they sign the consent that at the time they sign the consent, they're signing a consent for the randomization, not to pick the treatment that they like. I guess the other issue, too, here is the use of the oncotype in a patient like this, irregardless of the study. Let's say for some reason she was not eligible for the study, was clear for whatever reason she couldn't go into the study. Do you think oncotype would be something you'd be thinking about just for practical decision-making in her? Well, the classic patient that one likes to think of using oncotypin would be the one and a half centimeter grade two ER positive, PR negative patient in whom you're getting mixed signals. But I think the data is also quite clear that size alone is not a sufficient predictor of risk. This woman does have an intermediate risk tumor and it happens to be T1B. But we all operate on patients and take care of node-positive patients with T1B tumors. So we know that small tumors can be biologically aggressive. And I guess, too, if you think about the sort of pre-oncotype days, which is just a few years ago, it'd be interesting to speculate what would happen to a patient like this. What would you say? Well, a patient like this, in this age group, with the best available data... I personally would not offer chemotherapy to, and in Europe, she would almost certainly not get it. But in the United States, such a woman still might get chemotherapy. The data is not very good for additional benefit of chemotherapy in women over the age of 60 who have hormone-positive disease that's node-negative. 
And I guess really it's around that one centimeter size is where there's a lot of debate about chemotherapy. Again, if you think back to the, was it 2000 NIH consensus conference that had the one centimeter, all that stuff about that. And we know from our patterns of care studies that if you send a patient with a tumor that's more than a centimeter, even if it's 1.1 centimeter like this, 61 years old to an oncologist, she most likely would have gotten chemotherapy in the pre-oncotype days. Does that sound like what you were seeing with your oncologist? Well, again, I think that that is the reality, and that can be driven by culture, it can be driven by fear, it can be driven by economics. But I think, again, if one looks at the data in the pre-oncotype era, data from the International Breast Cancer Study Group, Study 9, which showed no benefit from the addition of CMF to tamoxifen for women who are postmenopausal, who were hormone receptor positive, the reanalysis of NSABPB20, which showed no value in women who were 60 years of age or greater, in that trial to the addition of CMF to tamoxifen. And you look at the most recent data from the Oxford Overview, the early breast cancer trialist collaborative group, there is no apparent benefit as a group to utilizing chemotherapy in individuals who are 60 years of age or greater who are node negative and who have tumors that are ER positive. And there's been an increase in controversy in the medical oncology community about this issue of chemotherapy in patients with ER positive tumors that are node negative and the question of whether they need it. And, you know, when you really look at the Oncotype DX, I say you see where that's coming from because most people don't need it. And so I think you're right. Probably this woman with a 0.8 centimeter ER positive tumor would have not gotten, good chance she would have not gotten chemotherapy pre-oncotype. And yet we know there would be a chance that she would have a high recurrence score, high risk, and high benefit from chemotherapy. Well, I would just comment. I actually would agree with your first statement that unfortunately in the United States, I think the chances are at least better than 50-50 that she would have been offered chemotherapy. But I think if you look at the hard data, there's not much data to support that for a population. But of course, it doesn't mean that there aren't individuals who wouldn't benefit. And that really is the key of modern medicine, is to try to identify those individuals who've been cured and not treat them, and to identify those individuals who are not cured and give them the correct treatment. So she went into the Taylor X study, and what happened in terms of Roncotype? Well, she went into the Taylor X study. The Oncotype returned a recurrence score of 25. That gave her about a 16% risk of distant recurrence in 10 years. This now fell into the intermediate category, and so she was, in fact, randomized. Now, at that point, did you go back over with her and say, okay, now that we have the archetype and a better predictor, she's at the higher end of the intermediate score. Do you then say, you know, are you still comfortable with being randomized? If not, you can drop out, or at that point, you're already down the road, you're going to keep going? No, I have had one patient approach me about dropping out after such randomization, who in fact ended up choosing to continue when we reviewed the data one more time. But I don't raise that as an issue because, again, I speak to patients before the consent, and as part of that process, the assumption is that they will continue with the randomization. I will comment that when you say she's at the higher end of the score, she's, of course, at the high end of the score for Taylor X. She isn't quite at the high end of the score for the commercially available oncotype assay, and there is a little bit of difference in the scores that are utilized for both. Can you go through that? Because it's important. Yeah. For the Taylor X trial, I think there was a sense that among the oncologists that participated in the intergroup, 
to being extremely conservative. And where the traditional boundaries were 18 and 30, that is low risk becomes intermediate over 18 and over 30 becomes high risk, the scores shifted to 11 and 25 for this particular study. And the reason, I think, was that there was a strong feeling that if a randomization were to be utilized and one were to prescribe therapies or proscribe therapies, that we ought to take the most conservative approach and make certain that there weren't patients who might benefit from chemotherapy who didn't receive it. So she then was randomized. And what was she randomized to? She was randomized to chemotherapy in addition to her hormonal therapy. The nice thing about the Taylor X trial is it doesn't specifically indicate the kind of therapy that has to be utilized. So these individuals can utilize hormonal therapies of choice if they're hormonal only or hormonal plus chemo of choice if they are in the combined group. There are some restrictions, but in general, most accepted regimens are utilized. She thought that that was something that she would do. She had mixed feelings, both because her score did show a significant risk She was at the high end of this intermediate category, so she didn't feel too badly about getting chemo, although clearly there was a part of her that would have been happy to have been told it's okay not to have chemo. And I guess we should clarify that in the Taylor X study, patients get inocotype. If it's low, they just get hormonal therapy as a standard. If it's high, they get some kind of chemotherapy as a standard. And if it's intermediate, as in this patient, they get randomized between chemo plus hormones versus hormones alone. Right. So she then went to the oncologist at that point? So she went to the oncologist at that point. Although we did talk about this as she was going over. And in fact, she ended up being offered a standard chemotherapy of adriamycin, 60 milligram per meter squared, and cyclophosphamide at 600 per meter squared. And that would be given in the standard of four cycles, three weeks apart. It's interesting, of course, because in recent years, there's been a great interest in whether or not patients might be able to avoid certain kinds of chemotherapy, for example, anthracyclines, and switch to platinums instead. But the fact is, is that this is a good standard regimen, and our tools, some thought we might have had for assessing risk and response, such as topoisomerase 2, are really not quite as valid, perhaps, as we might think. And so at this moment in time, we felt the standard for her was the best. And of course, she didn't have any underlying heart disease, so there was no particular reason not to go ahead and utilize that regimen. So where is she right now in her treatment? So she's actually completing her chemotherapy as we speak. And what are you expecting that she's going to receive in terms of hormone therapy once the chemotherapy is done? Well, she will then move on. She's postmenopausal. So again, we sit down and have a discussion. Either I do if the patient isn't seen a medical oncologist for cytotoxics, or the medical oncologist has a discussion with them in which we review the issues of hormonal treatment. For postmenopausal women, there are two basic choices, either tamoxifen or one of the aromatase inhibitors. And of course, the data has increasingly demonstrated a more favorable serious toxicity profile for the aromatase inhibitors and about a 20% relative improvement in risk reduction. What about the issue of tolerability and day-to-day quality of life of tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitors? For a long time, we dealt with the issue of vasomotor problems that were bothersome to a lot of people in tamoxifen, which are seen also in the AIs. But also the AIs have this arthralgia syndrome that you see. What's your overall take on sort of quality of life of the two approaches? 
Well, I think that's a great question because AIs on paper appear to have the much better toxicity profile. But in reality, that isn't true for all patients. And I was very careful before when I said their serious toxicity profile is much better with AIs than tamoxifen. But unfortunately, whereas the risk of endometrial cancer, for example, may be two per thousand per patient year use of drug, the 10, 15, or some say as high as 20%, not major clinical trials, but in clinical practice, complaint rate of the arthralgias is enough to take a number of women off the agent. And I find in my own practice, in a community of very active women who play tennis and play golf, that the arthralgias can be very, very bothersome. Now, if we start them on one aromatase inhibitor and they develop the arthralgias, our first move is to see how bad the arthralgias are. And if the patient really is concerned and says, you know, I just don't really like this or think I can continue... We'll try them on one of the other AIs, and often they actually do much better for reasons that I think are very unclear. There are women who can't tolerate any of them, and in such a circumstance, obviously, we can go back to tamoxifen. So you're thinking this lady most likely is going to end up on an aromatase inhibitor once she's finished with her chemo? So I believe this woman will end up on an aromatase inhibitor. And I guess one of the big questions coming out right now in terms of the aromatase inhibitor is how long we use these therapies. Obviously, with tamoxifen, it was five years. We started out with the AIs at five years. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the NSABP B42 trial that's addressing this question. We have a lot of women who are coming up on five years of an AI right now because the AI data started to come out at the end of 2001. How do you approach these patients off study? And how do you bring in the issue of the NSABP trial? Well, I think that we have to start with recognizing that there are decisions we make that are based as much on politics and societal values and concerns as anything else. Tamoxifen, of course, when it came out, was a drug that we assumed people would take the rest of their lives. And happily, unfortunately, I think the B14 trial included a re-randomization that looked at this issue. Had they not, we might have had a muddier picture. But not only do the toxicities, the endometrial cancer risks, the thromboembolic risks, et cetera, kind of continue to grow cumulatively over time with each year, but after five years, the benefit seemed to disappear. In fact, the group that received extended tamoxifen did worse. I do have to make the caveat that there are two large trials that are not mature yet. One, the ADAM trial in England and the ATLAS trial, which is a worldwide trial, looking at extended use of tamoxifen. And while we don't have any data from these trials, if one looks at some of the overview data, one might suppose that these trials may or may not line up quite as definitively as the NSABP trial. Furthermore, we may be able to suppose from the aromatase inhibitor trial with anastrozole, in which tamoxifen and anastrozole were given together in one arm, that there may be a group of patients in whom tamoxifen not only isn't protective at the beginning, but may in fact act as an agonist. That may be as high as 20%. So there are a lot of issues relating to the biology of tamoxifen and its duration that are unclear, but relate to its unique interaction with the estrogen receptor. 
When we speak of an aromatase inhibitor, we're now not talking about an agent that has any interaction with the cancer cell directly. We're talking about an agent that stops the availability of the agonist. And unless there is some other long-term toxicity that we're unaware of, unrelated to its effect on the cancer, it is unlikely that more than five years is going to be worse. And if there is any protective effect, one would expect that that would continue, much as any mechanism to eliminate or soak up estrogen production would. So I think that this has to be tested. It has to be tested because all of the trials were designed with the five-year benchmark, and that is being tested. It's being tested in an NSABP trial that will look at patients who are on an AI. They're converted to the AI letrozole, and at the end of five years, they have the opportunity to be randomly assigned to continued therapy versus no continued therapy or placebo. And I think that that will give us very valuable information as time goes on. There are other trials looking at extended use of aromatase inhibitors. We know data from the NCIC shows that using an aromatase inhibitor after five years of tamoxifen can reduce risk by half. And although the risk is low, it's important to remember that a woman after five years has a constant risk that runs cumulatively somewhere between 2 and 4% per year. And that risk taken in aggregate over 10 years is actually significantly higher than the risk of women who entered any of the chemo prevention trials, P1 or P2. I mean, it's a pretty substantial risk of recurrence period. Well, we know that women who have ER negative disease have a high risk in the first five years. But we also know that women who have ER positive disease, while lower risk in the first five years, that risk eventually intersects, crosses, and continues, whereas there's pretty much a plateau in the ER negative population. Yeah, it seems like there's really been a revolution at looking at the long-term natural history of ER-positive breast cancer in the last few years, particularly based on the MA17 study that you talked about using delayed letrozole. And I guess the other thing about that study that was so shocking, really, was when they looked at the patients who initially randomized to placebo. So they got some oxygen for five years. Then they went into the study, got randomized to nothing. So they were off treatment for two, three, four years. And then when the trial broke, they allowed the patients to start taking the letrozole at that point, And those patients had lower recurrence rates than the ones who didn't. Well, it would seem so. Unfortunately, that trial wasn't a terribly well-controlled trial for that purpose. I mean, this was really essentially a kind of compassionate use with some tracking. But there actually is a very, very interesting trial that is just starting up now in Australia, which we are looking to open in the United States. This is a trial that has been developed by the Australian New Zealand Breast Cancer Trials Group, and it is a trial that has the acronym LATER. And it's really designed to look at late treatment of endocrine-responsive breast cancer. Patients to enter this trial must have been off hormonal therapy for a year. But those patients who, for example, finished adjuvant tamoxifen when they were 45 years old 10 years ago would qualify for this study. How about if they've never had hormone therapy? Women who've never had hormonal therapy are not eligible for this particular trial. So these are postmenopausal women who at some point have gotten tamoxifen. At some point in their past, they'd had tamoxifen or they'd had hormonal therapy for their cancer, and they've had a gap. And that gap has to have been at least a year. 
And the idea is to attack this sort of constant risk, because if you think about the number of women that are extant in the world that have had tamoxifen, that have been more than a year finished with ER-positive disease, this is really a huge population of women who are at risk. And while 3% per year may not sound like a lot, multiplied across these populations, as Sir Richard Pito once said, small incidents in a big population turns out to be a lot of disease. I mean, 3% a year is 15% in five years. That's a lot. Well, it's a cumulative percent, so it's not, direct, not quite it's, that high. So it's not directly multiplied. But the point is, is that this risk is a risk that's quite significant over a patient's lifetime. And it's higher than the risk that we are willing to consider chemo prevention in the de novo setting. But also, this is recurrence, not a first two. Well, it's actually a combination, oh, really, right? of recurrence and new disease, because these women are at risk for right. new disease. But right. the evidence to date would suggest that drugs like tamoxifen and probably the aromatase inhibitors from the contralateral information are effective. And of course, the aromatase inhibitors appear, if you look at the contralateral breast cancer data, to be more effective than tamoxifen. So let's just pick up back with this patient, kind of finish off what happened to her. So she's getting her chemotherapy. She's on the TaylorX study. What about her radiation therapy post-lumpectomy? Well, interesting that you should mention that because as you've probably gathered in talking to me, I am a strong believer in clinical trials. And as a result, we also approached her with the potential to participate in a trial known as NSABP B39. Now, this is a trial that's designed to look at whether or not we can address the problems of radiation that we discussed earlier, particularly for women who find the time commitment and the distance duration difficult. B39 is looking at partial breast irradiation, and because you're radiating a smaller volume, this can be accelerated and given usually within a week period of time, and there are a number of techniques to do this. But the basic concept comes from the fact that the majority of recurrences in patients with primary breast cancer, primary operable breast cancer, occur in the bed of the tumor resection. This is among patients who've had lumpectomy. And the recurrences are largely confined to the same quadrant of the breast. So there have been a number of individuals over the years who've been advocates for this, and principally Dr. Kuski when he was down at the Ashner Clinic, and Dr. Vashini up at the Beaumont Hospital, and some others. But these two particularly have done a great deal in developing trials and studies to look at women and see whether localized radiation could give equivalent recurrence rates in the breast as whole breast radiation. And their data suggested it could, whether or not that radiation was delivered by brachytherapy techniques or by limited external beam. The NSABP B39 study takes women who have breast cancers that are moderate or small in size, that are limited, and allows them to be randomized to either standard external beam radiation therapy or one of three approaches to partial breast irradiation. These three approaches include either brachytherapy with afterloading catheters, so-called internal brachytherapy, which is using the mammocyte balloon technique, or external beam radiation with a modulated tailored beam. And women who undergo these treatments can have the radiation finished within a week's time. Those women who have external beam, of course, have the standard external beam treatment, which is a five to six week process. Now, are you utilizing these techniques outside of the trial in a non-protocol setting? 
Well, these techniques are all available and, of course, can be widely used however you wish. In my own practice, I do use them in selected patients, but very highly selected patients. Those individuals who have very little other option for treatment, those individuals who have a very, very strong motivation and understand that the long-term data for outcome and benefit isn't as mature as we'd like. Remember that the approval for some of the technical devices, such as the mammocyte, is not approved in the same way that drugs are approved in terms of long-term efficacy. These are approved under a different process in the FDA for devices that simply indicates that the device is safe and does what it intends to do in the short term. Now, when you use this, and I guess even within the trial, you get to sort of choose which of the three do you end up using yourself? Yes, you can choose which of the three makes sense. In my own particular practice environment, and for a number of reasons, we tend to use the external beam more frequently than not. Although among many in our group, the mammocyte is appealing, and certainly many breast surgeons have found the mammocyte to be an appealing technique, particularly when utilized after surgery and placed at a secondary setting. What's the advantage of mammocyte over conformal radiation therapy, potentially? I think that's a good question, and I don't have a very good answer. The mammocyte is a technique that can be placed after you have all the information back. So at the beginning, I think there were some concerns about utilizing mammocyte when you had to place it in the operating room. Although you weren't loading the seeds until you had all the information back, you had to use a very expensive catheter, which may in fact not be used because of your pathology information. Now, surgeons and radiologists who are adept with ultrasound can place these under ultrasound guidance postoperatively. So we do get that clinical information. The mammocyte can be utilized with afterloading techniques using high dose rate, which can be given over a short period of time, but so can the external beam radiation, which is given over a relatively short visit as well. I think there's probably more intensivity of treatment planning using external beam radiation, and you really need to have, I think, good equipment. And the main advantage of mammocyte over external beam is that the radiation is limited to a fairly defined area as long as you can get the cavity around the balloon well. Because external beam has to take into account slight positioning differences of a patient, and perhaps as importantly, the patient's breathing, there's been a tendency to have to use a wider field than one would use with an internal brachytherapy. However, with the most modern equipment, with IMRT techniques, that is intensity modulated radiation therapy, combined with the newest devices that have respiratory gating, it is possible to reduce those fields and have them very highly focused. So you brought up the issue of the NSABP trial to this woman? I brought up the NSABP trial to this woman, and she was very interested in this possibility. She did, in fact, choose to participate in the NSABP trial, and she underwent a randomization. And the randomization was, in fact, to partial breast irradiation. So she ended up receiving external beam was the technique that we chose, and she received 38.5 gray over a week. This was given in 10 fractions with a four-field non-coplanar external 6-MV photon beam. It was well-tolerated. She had some initial erythema over the area, and that resolved. So she got this before the chemo. Yes, I think that's an important point, although you asked me about this after the chemo. An important point is, is that partial breast irradiation is given prior to the chemo. 
This is done because it can be delivered relatively quickly. You know, studies have suggested that the use of chemotherapy prior to radiation is valuable because you're treating the more life-threatening disease first, and there have even been measured differences in survival, or at least disease-free survival, when radiation is delivered prior to chemo. But in this particular case, since it can all be done in a week, there's not much delay. So what was this woman's reaction? I think I'm going to be able to guess it when she found out what she was randomized to. She was actually, of course, very, very pleased with that randomization. And again, she did quite well. She did have a common finding, which is a recall reaction. And that is one of the disadvantages of any of the partial breast techniques when radiation is given first. In other words, she had the erythema from the radiation therapy. It resolved. She had a couple of week hiatus and went on to get her chemotherapy. But after her first cycle and into her second cycle of chemotherapy, she had a very, very significant erythema and inflammatory response in the area of the breast where she'd had her partial breast radiation. How long did that last? That lasted a couple of weeks, and then it resolved. But she had any skin breakdown? Or? She didn't have skin breakdown, but she did have a dose delay of that second cycle. Interesting. And it is interesting that she got the anthracycline adriamycin because more and more we're hearing about the possibility of non-anthracycline, such as the docetaxel cyclophosphamide combination. I would imagine that there might be less potential for that radiation recall if there wasn't an anthracycline. What are your thoughts? I don't know. I don't think there's much data. And I think this will be some of the interesting data that comes from this trial. You know, the trial's endpoints are to see whether there is essentially a difference in the local recurrence. But really, the important part of the trial, we don't need very, very detailed statistics to show that there is a half a percent difference between one arm and the other. But we will get really good data, I think, on differences in outcome, complication rate, side effects, and the general tolerability and quality of life of women who are participating in the trial in the different techniques. And I guess cosmesis for sure. And cosmesis as well. You know, it's interesting when you think about it. Here's this woman who's been on two important studies. One patient who's really having a big impact. But, you know, there's also the question about sort of how docs in practice discuss randomized trials like these trials. These aren't the easiest kind of randomizations to talk to, chemo versus no chemo, six weeks of treatment versus one week of treatment. I mean, do you feel like you were obligated, for example, to present to this woman the option of receiving conformal radiation therapy off study? Well, yeah, I do. And I don't tell them they have to be on study to have this. What I tell them is that, firstly, what we know, and my radiation therapist does the same, what we know is the gold standard of treatment is external beam radiation therapy over at least 25 fractions. And that is what a woman should expect who has primary breast cancer. Now, that's not to say that there aren't circumstances in which you can do other things. We all make decisions. There are women who choose not to have any radiation therapy at all, and we follow them as best we can. But if one talks about what's optimal, we need to talk about what we know, and I tell that to patients. So I don't start off, as do some, suggesting this is the way to go, that partial breast irradiation is now the way to go. I suggest that it is an important and interesting approach And if all else fails, it can be utilized. It's much like using an aromatase inhibitor for perhaps DCIS. I wouldn't do that in my standard practice, even though it may turn out that that is better. But if I have a woman who has high-risk DCIS and has a history of thromboembolic disease, I might consider using an aromatase inhibitor. I certainly did that before the aromatase inhibitors came out for invasive breast cancer, because these were women who really needed a hormonal treatment. 
So I think what we should try to do is provide the best current therapy, but make sure patients understand where the limitations are. And when they enter a trial like B39, although there is a randomization, if they start from the basis that they're likely to get external beam radiation therapy, and that's their standard. So if they're interested in getting partial breasts, that's a bonus if they get it, but they shouldn't be disappointed if they don't. Then most women are willing to accept that. I think this is a great case to really point that out, too, when you think about it. I mean, I never would have thought about this. This woman spent two weeks in pain. Did she require pain medication? Was this a con- oh, yeah, significant problem? Right. And I guess you could pretty well guess that wouldn't have happened if she'd gotten external beam. Well, it may not have, or it may have. I mean, there's certainly skin reactions to external beam. But you wouldn't have I, had the radiation recall, is my point. No, the radiation recall, that's true. That would not have happened. And it may turn out at the end of this study that we reassess and decide that we should give partial breast after chemotherapy like we do external beam. These are the things that I think come out of being in clinical trials and why this is so important. 